Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. You are, my friends, blessed. Blessed, blessing, blessed. It is a word and a concept that is familiar to all of us. But what does it really mean? It's a word that has a distinct importance to Christians, those in the church, yet it is used by all sorts of people for all kinds of situations. Now think about it. We just came off of the Christmas season and where the word blessed or blessing is seen everywhere by secular corporations, unbelievers, perhaps even atheists. I think the most interesting use of this word is, just think about it. What did you say the last time someone sneezed? You ever wondered what that means? Bless you, God bless you, why do we say it? Well, now, in our culture, we say it because it's a polite thing to do, and that's okay. But there's a few different reasons, actually, why historians believe this saying came to be, to say bless you, or more specifically, God bless you, after a sneeze. Back in the first century, it was because of a superstition. There were some who believed that a sneeze was the body's way of expelling an evil spirit. And so, saying God bless you, was a way to provide some sort of protection against the evil spirit that was either now fleeing the body or still residing in it. There's also, perhaps you medical professionals have heard this one, there's a false belief that every time you sneeze, briefly your heart stops beating. I heard this many years ago and and believed it for a long time. And so God bless you was a way of ensuring one's health or to thank God for surviving what was essentially a mini heart attack. The reality is that though there is a change in blood flow due to to, uh, the increase of a thing called intrathoracic pressure, your heart does change a little bit. There's a decrease in blood flow back to the heart, so the heart briefly adjusts its rhythms to compensate. However, a sneeze does not affect the electrical activity of the heart, so it doesn't stop beating at any point. Then there was the plague in 541 A.D. that spread across the Eastern Roman Empire. And even if you just vaguely remember world history, you know how devastating these plagues were back then without modern medicine. And there is a belief that Pope Gregory I decreed that any time a sneeze was heard, the, sneeze, the sneezer was to be blessed by the saying, God bless you, while crossing over their mouth as a protection against the plague. Now we understand, both theologically and scientifically, that as fun as all of those historical fun facts are, they are quite silly, especially in light of modern science and what we understand about the Scriptures. But it goes to show just how flippantly and perhaps even carelessly we use and understand the idea of blessing. But today, this morning, and next week, 
I want to give you a study that gives us the truth behind blessing. And it all starts with the fact that true blessing, any blessing, is an act of grace. But don't take my word for it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Verses 4 through 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is our passage for this morning and next week. The Apostle Paul continues his greeting in this letter to the church at Corinth. And he says in verse 4 and following, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Over the next two weeks, I want to give you our outline as eight realities Eight realities of the grace bestowed upon believers. Eight realities of the grace bestowed upon believers. And understand that I use blessing and grace interchangeably because they are interconnected in the Christian's life and hopefully even this morning we will see why. The first reality of the grace bestowed upon believers is the source of blessing. The source of blessing. Let me read for you again verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. I want to remind you at this point that Paul's treatment by the Corinthians to whom he is writing at this point in his life is hurtful, it is demeaning, it is disrespectful. And yet, in what ended up being God's Word, the Scriptures, he says he thanks God for them. Right off the bat, we are given the underlying theme of everything we're going to look at in this passage. You see, it's not about the Corinthians per se. It's about what God has done, is doing, and will do in the Corinthians. And when we talk about God's grace in our lives, which leads here to the response of thanksgiving, it is only in and through God's grace that we can have the right perspective on anything in this life. Despite our sin, despite our spiritual shortcomings, despite our moral failures, God is still gracious. God is still blessing. In other words, God is still God. The King is on His throne and thus He is still fulfilling His promises to us. So, in the same way, Paul will focus on and address the Corinthian shortcomings in this letter. But, he first lays the proper foundation in both his thinking and in their minds by speaking of the grace of God. Because for any of this to make sense that we will be looking at over the next probably couple of years, the seriousness of their sin, the desire to repent, even Paul caring about them at all, even Paul even, even, even caring that they're sinning. We must understand the source of blessing and grace. It is God. If this just ended on the human level, none of this 
would be here. It is because of God's grace in the Corinthians' lives, in Paul's life, that makes him write this letter, that makes him care what the church is doing, that makes him care what the individual believers are doing. What we start with, though, is not the daily blessing of life and breath and worldly provision and pleasures that God gives us. What we focus on is what the Corinthians have in Christ Jesus. This, first and foremost, is their salvation. Again, when we talk about grace, we understand everything is grace. Everything, the, 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 the daily provision, every breath that we've taken, the, the dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of times your heart has beaten since you walked in this door that you have not even recognized, you have not even felt, and yet it is God's grace sustaining your heart. All of those we understand, we recognize, we appreciate as believers because of what is most synonymous with, with God's grace, and that is the gospel. That is our salvation. And this is where we must start. This is where we must start as a foundation for any other thing that we would consider grace or a blessing from God. And in this context, Paul is speaking of all of the undeserved gifts that God has freely bestowed on the Corinthians because they are believers. When Paul speaks of grace, he's referring to concrete expressions of God's blessing or gracious activity in their lives, especially their spiritual gifts, as we'll see in the context. And this is really important to understand because the Corinthians were abusing their gifts. This is one of the main issues that we will see in 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is addressing, confronting the church at Corinth Not having gifts, that's a good thing, but abusing the gifts that God has given them and allowing their giftedness to feed their pride, resulting in arrogance, resulting in individuals thinking they're better than other Christians in the church, which led them to using their gifts not to build each other up, but to build themselves up. And so not only is Paul giving thanks for people that are distressing him, he's giving thanks in particular, for their gifts, which are the means by which they are distressing Him. This is contrary to worldly thinking. To be thankful for people that are harming you. I think as believers, we can learn a lot from Paul's attitude. It's not just a momentary break from his anger in which he musters up the energy to be thankful for a split second. Look at his vocabulary. I thank my God always concerning you. That's not that he's giving thanks for the Corinthians nonstop 24-7, but the idea behind the Greek word is at every opportunity, as a regular habit, I give thanks to God for you. Whenever he can, Paul gives thanks to God concerning these individuals that are right now hating on him. And I don't think I need to remind you Again, that the you here refers to the very source of irritation in Paul's life at this time. Distress. Tears. And so, I want to ask you, are you thankful for God's work in others' lives even in the midst of being irritated, being inconvenienced, being used, being sinned against 
by that specific individual. If not, it's likely that you're focusing on the recipient of the blessing rather than the source of the blessing. And that's the point here. Paul gives thanks to God for the Corinthians. It's only in God that this is possible considering the circumstances. Like Paul, we must start with this first reality of grace bestowed. The source of blessing. And thus the source of thanksgiving. Whether it's thankful for what He has done for us or thankful for what He is doing in other people, even if they are not treating you the way you would like. This principle can also carry over to our attitudes in general and not just how we view others. We must always remember God's grace. Not just grace. God's grace. See, it's one thing to be treated nicely or to receive favor from another sinner. In other words, another human being. It is an entirely different galaxy to receive grace from your Creator whose infinite, undeniable, and immeasurable wrath you deserve and have earned. Only to be given His grace instead. Because what the tortured and crucified Savior deserved and earned on your behalf. Remember God's grace. When we look at other people, we have a tendency to think. This is why we get upset. Maybe these words don't cross your mind, but this is the attitude when we get upset, when we get offended, when we give the silent treatment, when we don't want to talk to that individual anymore. You just don't think you deserve to be treated that way by that individual. And perhaps sometimes we even think, yeah, and I did this for him. Can you believe this? Can you believe how much I sacrificed for him and now he treats me like this? Does he have any idea how hard it was to find that gift I gave him for Christmas? How expensive that was. And he treats me like this? I don't deserve that. When we think about God's grace versus God's wrath, the only thing you deserve is God's wrath. The only thing you have earned in and of yourself is hell. Anything above that is grace. And so we look at other people and how they treat us. And it's not that we take this to a weird spiritual level where we say like, well, thanks for hitting me. You know, you should hate me more because I just deserve hell. No, that's not it. There's still, you know, social graces and interpersonal relationships that we need to work on. But the reality is, is whenever we get cocky about what we deserve, what, what I've done, what I should get, you've missed the whole point of grace and perhaps you don't even understand it. At least in that moment, you've forgotten. Everything is grace. And so, in general, whether you're having difficulties with a neighbor or family member, you don't like your work, you don't think you make enough money, you can't pay the bills, whatever it is, understand that every penny, every breath, every greeting, every relationship is undeserved. That is the very definition of grace. And when you understand that, then you understand why Paul can be thankful for people who are treating him so poorly. And in turn, in focusing on grace... Easier said than done, I understand. 
But when we focus on grace, then we too can be overwhelmingly thankful regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how other people are treating us. We move on and see this further in our second reality of the grace bestowed upon believers, and that is the depth of blessing. The depth of blessing. In the first part of verse 5, we read that in everything you were enriched in Him. Paul goes on to explain the fullness of grace that all believers have received. The word everything here in the Greek means everything. In everything, you are enriched in Him. The Greek word literally is all or every. Everything. All that we need, God has given us and it is a blessing. All that we have, God has given and it is a blessing. And in every aspect, Paul says, the Corinthians and all believers are enriched in Him. That word enrich literally means to make rich or exceedingly rich. In other words, it's not just average. It's not just getting by. It's wealth. And this makes a a clear distinction between who the Corinthians and we were before salvation and who we all are today. Once spiritually poor, destitute, and bankrupt, We are now in Christ because of His grace, because of His blessing, not just getting by, but we are spiritual millionaires in everything. In everything. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. Not partial, not 99.9. You have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. 2 Peter 1, 3 says, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. This is... Talking about spiritual needs. We have everything we need spiritually. This is, this is not a, a point in your life where if there's a sin that you just can't overcome, there's a sin you cannot repent of, it's not because you're missing something. It's not because uh, if you give more to the church, then the Holy Spirit will help you. Well, you haven't hit your 10-year anniversary mark as a believer yet because then you'll be able to overcome that. No, you have everything you need spiritually to overcome that sin, to repent, to turn to Him, to grow. And although the context in our passage as well as the references we just looked at refer to spiritual needs, I want to make mention of physical needs. We know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus promises that all our physical needs will be met as well. You say, well, that doesn't seem like it. All our physical needs, not wants, needs. But that's only true as secondary to our spiritual needs. Your greatest spiritual needs is forgiveness of sin, which is justification at the moment of salvation and continue forgiveness as you sin as a believer. Second to that, 
God promises to meet all of our needs for those who are in Him. One, spiritual, is the foundation for the other, physical. In other words, because of His grace in our spiritual needs, including salvation, we are locked into His promises for physical provision. The problem comes, and when I say problem, I'm saying doubt, uh, discontent, questioning if He's really doing this. The problem comes when we are spiritually filled, as He has said we are, spiritually provided for, spiritually enriched, and that's still not enough. Because we want to have all of those but substitute the word spiritually with physically. We want to be physically enriched, physically filled, materially provided for. All our wildest dreams we want. And the, un- the underlying problem there is that you are not content with what truly matters. You're not content with having everything you need spiritually. We're not satisfied with being spiritually wealthy because we want to be physically wealthy. We want more money. More, 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 more. You can't really ask for more, 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 more spiritually because He's already given you everything. More spiritual growth, more repentance, sure. But that's really up to you and your reliance on God as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And maybe that's it. Maybe we've become so used to the Gospel. Maybe we've become so comfortable with the fact that we have been given every spiritual blessing that we're just kind of, it's not special anymore. We we just have it. I I know I overuse this illustration, but it's like that that, that new car you get. Right? No food in the car. Sorry. Finish your hamburger outside. Right? Waxing it, cleaning it, buying, going online and buying all your waxes and things like that. Parking super far away, walking in the rain because you don't want anyone to ding it. Then what happens five years later? You walk in that guy's car and you're like, what happened? Did a McDonald's explode in here? There's wrappers, there's a french fry under the mat. There's all these dings and scratches. It's a different color because he hasn't washed it in a year. Right? <laughs> We get used to good things, including our salvation, including the Gospel, including the fact that we are spiritually rich. And so we look for fulfillment elsewhere. And when you're not content with what truly matters, your entire life will miss the point of this life, which is found in our third reality of grace, the mission of blessing. The mission of blessing. Paul writes that in everything you were enriched in Him, still holds true everything, but then he goes on to mention two specific ways we are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Yes, all believers, Corinthians and Californians included, are enriched in all things, but there are two specific spiritual gifts that Paul mentions because they are two spiritual gifts that are so wonderful, so divine, so gracious because they allow us to fulfill our mission on earth. Which is not to earn more money, not to have a bigger house or a new car, 
Our mission on earth is to understand and to proclaim His Word. Speech here is the articulation of the Gospel. It's the telling of God's truth. And this, as Paul says, is something all believers have. The ability to speak for God. It is not reserved for some Christians, but given to all Christians. Knowledge is the ability to apprehend that truth. To grasp it. It's not that we understand and know everything about God and understand every nuance of His Word and and, and no longer need commentaries or sermons. But we are given enough understanding and knowledge to speak effectively for the Lord as His representative. That may mean in that conversation, that evangelistic conversation, you will not have every answer that they ask you. They may point to verses they've heard before and you like, I'm not sure, let me get back to you. But you can tell them how they can be saved. And if you are a Christian here this morning and say, no, 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 I can't. Yes, you can, because you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you know the gospel, that's how you are saved. Arguing about Trump will not save someone. Convincing someone not to have an abortion will not save someone. You will save a life. It's very good. But both of those people are still destined for hell. Convincing someone that homosexuality is not in their DNA does not save someone. There are plenty of unbelievers, plenty of political Republicans that believe these things and yet shake their fist at God. It is only the Gospel that saves. And this, and much more as believers, you understand and can present to the world and to the church to edify and encourage them. We're given enough understanding and knowledge to speak effectively for the Lord as His representative. And these two gifts, speech and knowledge, which you could call blessings or manifestations of God's grace, are general. So they can't be restricted to a specific type of speech, specifically, or knowledge. In other words, though the Corinthians, and we'll see this later in the book, were struggling with using the sign gifts, such as speaking in tongues and prophecy, in an abusive way, which again, Paul will address later, here Paul is speaking more generally. He's not only speaking of the gift of tongues or the word of knowledge. So speech would include any form of expressing the saving message of Jesus Christ. Both practical and theoretical, devotional, apologetic. Whether you're just sharing the Gospel with a guy at the bus stop or pastors preaching, instructing, teaching, or even admonition, encouragement. This is all falls under speech. Knowledge, again, would be the knowledge necessary for whatever form of speech you may be exhibiting or practicing as you tell people God's truth. Regardless of what type of speech, including sign gifts for the Corinthians and the early church, this reminder of God's grace enriching us through these gifts is significant by telling us that speech and knowledge are key aspects of how God enriches us through His grace. And so we need to keep a few things in mind. Okay? Do you, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but do you get what I'm saying here? 
God's grace is seen in so much. And yet in all of those millions of things, even if you boil it down to a couple dozen things theologically and theologically and doctrinally, Paul mentions two, speech and knowledge. And because of this emphasis, there are three things we need to keep in mind. First of all, don't abuse the gifts. And I say this from the context of 1 Corinthians. They were abusing the gifts. And there's two main ways you can abuse the gifts. One is within the church. See, the Corinthians were abusing their gifts within the church by practicing them, which you should do, but they were doing it in a way that it was a source or they were a source of self-aggrandizement, self-promotion. When you do that, you naturally put others down. Because the idea is, look how, look how well I speak. Look how much theology I know compared to you. That's kind of the, what was going on there. Becoming know-it-alls or even misapplying the knowledge in a way that hurts a weaker believer's conscience. This is the complete opposite of what God calls the church to do, which is to build up the church, to build one another up. Another way you can abuse these gifts is outside of the church. In other words, using these skills to pursue things that are not about the glory of God. You see, like your education, the skills and knowledge you obtained in school are not only effective in your field, at your job. What you learn can be used outside of work. And in the same way, we can use our gift of speech and knowledge for purposes contrary to what God intended them for. God has blessed you in your understanding of Scripture. You can use that to judge or demean unbelievers or followers of other religions, especially Christian cults, rather than graciously encouraging them to repent. You knock them down and mock them. We can use these gifts to pursue wealth and worldliness to the detriment of evangelism and edifying the saints. These hedge fund managers that are now in prison, where do you think they learned how to siphon all of that money? It's the same principles they they learned in school and in their vocations. It's using something that they've learned for bad instead of good. So firstly, when thinking of the importance of God's grace embodied in speech and knowledge, we must remember, don't abuse the gifts. A second thing to keep in mind is that we are to practice these gifts. If they are so highlighted by Paul in all of this context, in the midst of talking about grace in general, spiritual enrichment, even in, in the midst of these gifts were, the, were one of the main sources of, of the difficulties that he was facing because of the Corinthians. He still highlights them as good. We need to remember that we need to practice these gifts. We have all been given these gifts. You say, what do you mean I need to practice these gifts? I mean you need to share the Gospel. And I mean you need to share the Gospel to a level of priority above how am I going to feed my kids and pay my bills and get this promotion. Those are means to an end, you understand. 
God wants you to work. There's a whole theology of work that starts all the way in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. It is good. It is right. It is good to make sure that your kids are nourished and clothed and educated. It is good not to owe money and have your lights shut off and your heat turned off to pay your bills, in other words. But all of these things are temporary so that in this world system that is based on money and in our country, capitalism, that is a means to an end. And the end is to glorify God. The end is not just so we can survive until His second coming. The end is not just so we can enjoy all of our toys and our technology and our vocations. It is so that we can survive and be content and be healthy and educated so that we can preach the gospel, so that we can encourage the saints, so that we can live out in this sinful world that which is of the eternal kingdom. You've heard me say it before. I have no problem if you want to go on vacation. I have no problem if you want to buy a Mercedes. I don't know your situation. I'm okay if you want to buy a Lamborghini. But are you pursuing these things to the detriment of what really matters? Is that your life's goal? To just provide. That's one way to glorify God, to provide, to be healthy, to take care of your body. But you got to understand that we need to practice these gifts that God has given us. And our priorities sometimes are really skewed. And so thirdly, remember to remember your mission. And again, look at the big picture. There's so many things that Paul could have mentioned as a primary ways in which we are spiritually enriched, but he picks these two because they make up the greatest blessing and privilege that you can have post-salvation, which is to speak for Christ. I mean, how excited were you when out of thousands of employees, you were the one picked to represent your company? You were the one. I, I lived in L.A., so maybe this d- doesn't resonate with you. But of all the people who wanted to do that, you were the one to be chosen to be the personal assistant of Tom Cruise or Mel Gibson or one of these celebrities. These people are like blown away. I get to pick up Tom Cruise's underwear from the dry cleaner. (laughs) And you know what? Everyone's like, whoa, you hang out with Tom Cruise? Yeah, I'm his personal assistant representing Tom Cruise. And yet when it comes to Jesus Christ, Yeah, 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 I go to church. But hey, uh, how's work? We change the subject. We're more more proud of our title. We're more proud of our education, our diploma, who hired us, where we're moving, where we're going for a vacation. Look, it's good to praise God for those things and to share Christ through those things, but share Christ through those things. And this connects back to what we were saying before about the dangers of focusing too much on pursuing physical or material enrichment. When you do that, you lose focus not only on what should be a priority over worldly pursuits, 
But you also lose sight of the fact that these are such a priority for God, spiritual pursuits, that He's already given you all the tools you need. Do you get that? How important is it to God that we proclaim His truth? So much so that He's already given you the entire arsenal, the full tool belt of what you need to do that, to accomplish that. You want that $2 million house? You're going to be keep what well, you know. I'm going to keep working. Got to keep working. This is hard. I got, I need it. I got to get it. I need it. I got to work hard. I got to finagle my way into the president's office and do this with the manager and do that. Well, are you evangelizing? Oh, it's so hard. I don't know. And yet you already have all the tools. Your tool belt is full, complete. You go to Home Depot, there's nothing left to buy. You have it all. This is how important it is to God, and this is how easy it is or should be for us to represent Christ. Well, we've seen three of the four we're going to look at this morning. The source of blessing, the depth of blessing, the mission of blessing, and finally, for today, the confirmation of blessing, and we'll look at the last four next week. Verse 6 says, Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. That word even, even as, explains what precedes this verse. So it explains how and why the grace of God has been bestowed upon believers. And the reason is simply because we are believers. See, the testimony he is talking about here, that word testimony, refers to the gospel itself. That the behavior of Paul, he's talking about the gospel. And confirmed means settled, made steadfast and solid. You put this all together. What Paul is saying is that everything we looked at thus far occurred when the Corinthians trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So when a person accepts God's offer in faith through, as Paul writes elsewhere, confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then grace becomes operative in that person's life at the moment of salvation. The moment you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior truly, the floodgates of blessing are open. So not only are they changed in regards to their eternal destination, not only are they changed in their status before God from enemy to friend, but their daily living for the rest of their days on earth becomes one of grace and blessing, which as we've seen is fuel for living for Christ. And this really brings us full circle to what we saw as our first point in that God is the source of grace. We've seen how all of that grace and blessing relates to our salvation in that we are not just given great things, but our whole perspective on life and how to use those blessings is changed. From self-focused to God-focused. From material and worldly to heavenly. From temporal riches to eternal reward. And so again, I say what I said in the beginning, 
Dear beloved, you are blessed. But don't forget why you are blessed. Don't forget how you are blessed. Don't forget the purpose of that blessing. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Four of the eight realities of the grace bestowed upon believers, the source of blessing, God, the depth of blessing, all spiritual needs are met, the mission of blessing, God's grace is embodied in understanding and proclaiming the truth, and the confirmation of blessing, which was your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much that a word that is so common in our culture, that is so recognized but misunderstood, we thank You that we truly understand it, not only in, a, in, a, in definition, but in experience. Father, it's so much more than just being happy. It's so much more than just getting good things to, to enjoy. And I pray that as we've learned this morning, those of us who are believers would take that grace, take that blessing, and use it as you desire for the understanding and proclamation of your gospel, for grace towards other people and thanksgiving for the work you are doing in them. May we always remember, Father, that we deserve none of it, but it was all earned through a horrible, horrible sacrifice paid by God, very God. May we live and behave and think in light of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.